All right, last week we started our journey uh, going back through what we call the River Stones uh, that we adopted over 20 years ago. These are uh, the reason, this story in Joshua is the reason that we changed our name after a few years to Riverstone. Um, the story of Joshua as he leads the people of Israel uh, out of the desert and into the promised land. They cross the Jordan. Now, can I just confess to y'all that, I, so I grew up an Auburn fan. And I still am an Auburn fan. And one of our best coaches ever was Shug Jordan. And our stadium is Jordan Hare. And every time I read Jordan River, something in my brain wants to say Jordan River. So if I ever do that, just give me some grace there. So Joshua leads the people across the Jordan. God separates the river, and they walk across on dry land. They get to the other side, and the Lord says, okay, Joshua, now I want you to send 12 men back into the river to get river stones uh, and you're going to build an altar of remembrance so that when generations in the future ask, what do these stones mean? You can point uh, to the things, to the, really to the power of God. So we're going to read the, that uh, passage again from Joshua chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. And then skip ahead, verse 19. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now let's pray. 
Lord, we pray, open our hearts to receive from you, open our minds to understand as you reveal things to us. We want to know what you want us to know. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We want to be more like you. And so we ask that you would shape us, inform us, that you would put in our hearts to go after the things that you have called us to go after. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, if you were here, we talked about the first four stones, the stone of worship, the stone of intercession, the stone of strategic warfare, and the store of impartation. And today, uh, we're going to talk about apostolic ministry, generational investment, global harvest, and humility. So number one, the stone of apostolic ministry. Uh, apostolic ministry is usually associated with sending. It's the idea of training and sending, training and equipping and sending people out. Uh, the Greek verb apostello means to order one to go to a place or to go to an appointed place. So it has this whole idea of sending. Uh, in, in current church culture, there's this obsession with size and fame. Uh, but really, apostolic ministry is more concerned with expanding outward than growing upward. So rather than just growing and growing and growing, the apostolic heart is to send. It's to train and send, train and send. Apostolic ministry focuses on equipping. Uh, in the context of church planting, an apostolic church network would rather have multiple locations reaching the lost in their community with the purpose of multiplying leaders and spreading together a net across a region, even uh, with the opportunity or the possibility of winning an entire city. They would rather have that than have one huge location that people drive for miles to get to. We would rather plant something in the community where you live so that that community can be a part of your life every day, not just on Sunday. Apostolic ministry is more a movement than a method. And this movement is born out of a commitment to the great commission that is motivated by the great commandment. Great commission, the assignment that Jesus gave us is to go and make disciples of all nations. And our motivation for that is our love for him. The great commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the great commission, making all disciples, and the great commandment, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when those two things come together, there's a motivation for the lost. That is the heart of apostolic ministry, reaching the lost, not continually filling our worship centers, our small groups, and our youth groups by attracting believers from other churches, but actually having a focus on the lost, the unchurched, those who have not believed, to focus on them. Apostolic ministry also can mean ministry that's done the way the apostles did it. If you look back uh, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, and you notice the way the early apostles did ministry. Apostolic ministry can mean that as well. Apostolic ministry in those original apostles had three main characteristics. 
Number one, it was in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Peter and John, as they're headed to the temple, they're interrupted along the way, and a man asks them for money. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. They did ministry in the name of Jesus. They recognized that the authority that they operated under was the authority of Jesus. The second thing is they did ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't depend on their own wisdom. They didn't depend on their own uh, intuitive strategies. They didn't depend on their own personalities or strengths. They depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. And the strategy that they got for kingdom expansion came from him in the place of prayer. Ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll see phrases like, it seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit to go here. It seemed right to us to go there. It seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit to go there, so they go. And then you'll also see, we wanted to go there, but the Holy Spirit told us no. So they did what they did in the power under the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. And they did ministry for the glory of the Father. Not for their own glory, not for their own fame, but for the glory of the Father. Apostolic ministry. Uh, Stone number two for today is generational investment. Uh, Last week, Melissa and I had the opportunity to actually the blessing uh, to be at one camp with our students and the students and leaders from all of the network churches. And, And it was an incredible week. It was an amazing week. And I actually intentionally uh, placed generational investment on this Sunday because I knew we would be coming out of camp. It would be fresh. And I want to say that uh, as amazing as our kids were last week, and they they were, I was actually in awe of our our adults. Uh, The adults that we have that take a week off either from work, they take a vacation, week of vacation, or maybe they take a week that they could have been at home, or they take a week where they could have been at the beach or anywhere, and instead, they spend a week in a musty cabin filled with the smells of wet socks, body odor, and stopped up toilets. And, and make no mistake, every toilet in the camp will stop up at least once. And they choose that. They choose that. Why, why do they choose it? They choose it because they love having a front row seat when a generation of, of teenagers runs headlong into the presence of a loving God. They love being on the front row when a generation of teenagers runs headlong into a loving, life-changing history-making, destiny-changing God. And so, uh, kudos to the grown-ups. Now, my dad and I, we clashed on some things. Um, There were certain things that we always clashed on, generational things. My dad and I, we clashed on hair. Now, I I know you you look at me today and you think, why in the world would y'all clash on hair? My hair actually used to grow, and, and it used to cover my whole head. And in fact, there were times as a teenager when it covered my shoulders. 
I wanted my hair as long as I could get away with. My dad, not so much. Um, the other thing that we clashed on was clothing. Now, I, my dad didn't understand why jeans got bigger down towards your ankles. He, he didn't grasp that concept. Why? He just didn't understand that. He, he never warmed up to flares. Some of you don't even know what flares are. Flares were kind of baby bell-bottoms. He didn't warm up to flares. There was no way he was warming up to bell-bottoms. Music. We clashed on music. Now, I was, I was a Frampton guy, y'all. I loved Peter Frampton. That's why I loved long hair. I loved Peter Frampton, and I can remember sitting in our den, our whole family watching the Grammys, and, and I'm cheering because Frampton is winning every Grammy, and my dad is just dying. He thinks the world's coming to an end because Frampton is winning. And then there were sports, and our, our clash on sports was very similar to our clash on, on music because back in the day, there was a Swedish tennis player named Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg actually looked like Peter Frampton. And I loved Bjorn Borg. He had long hair. They called him the Iceman. The Iceman, because he never showed emotion. He was an incredible tennis player. But my dad would get so angry because I would pull for Bjorn Borg, this Swedish guy in the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or one of the majors as he played against Jimmy Connors or John McEnroe. And my dad would say, they're Americans. And I would say, but Bjorn Borg is so cool. <laughs> and he just couldn't get it. He, he wanted to revoke my citizenship. <laughs> every generation, you know, every generation embraces some things that, that don't make sense to the generation before. It's just the way things are. Mostly, though, mostly it's things that don't matter. Mostly it's things that don't matter, like bell bottoms or leisure suits. <laughs> They're coming back. Everything comes back. We just have to figure out. We have to figure out how to give from one generation to the next the things that do matter. The things that do matter. Not our opinions, not the way we did it, but the truth. The unchanging truth of God's word. The unchanging truth of God's ways. Those are the things that we have to pass from generation to generation. Daniel Bashta uh, was the worship pastor here for a number of years, and he wrote a song called Just Give Me Jesus. And there's a line in that song that goes like this. I'm just looking for the real Jesus, and nothing else will do. I'm just looking for the real Jesus, and nothing else will do. That's what we need to give. That's what we need to pass along. Let me give you some tips for dealing with your teenagers. Listen to a teenager long enough. Listen to them long enough to actually hear what's in their heart. Don't judge them based on what you see. Don't get frustrated or bothered when your middle schooler acts like a middle schooler. Now, they have every right to get frustrated with you when you act like a middle schooler. 
Don't get frustrated when middle schoolers act like middle schoolers. Get frustrated when 40-year-olds act like middle schoolers. Look for ways to point them to Jesus. And one of the best ways to point them to Jesus is to let them see something real in you. Let them see a real faith in you, a real dependence in you. More than anything, let them see a real love for Jesus in you. Tell them the truth. Not the way your generation did it. The truth. The truth. And finally, give them room to fail and grow. When I was 20 years old, I was hired as a youth pastor. I'd been a Christian for a year and a half, so I, I was ready. And uh, <laughs> 20 years old, thrown in, got married at 20, came home from our honeymoon, and started my job as a youth pastor. My, my senior pastor called me in his office that first summer, and he said, hey, we're going to have a youth revival. And I thought, that's great. We need to have a revival for the youth. And he said, no, we're going to have a church-wide revival led by the youth. I said, how are we going to do that? And he said, you need to find me three people, three teenagers who will preach. We're going to do three nights, and they're going to preach. And so for three nights, we had a 15-year-old and two 14-year-olds who preached. Does that sound scary to y'all? It was, it was terrifying to me. I, especially the first night was my younger brother, 15 years old, and he preached. And I asked him, I said, what's your title of your sermon? He said, uh, absolute, absolute humility. I was just glad that he didn't add a tag to the title, absolute humility and how I achieved it. I was just nervous. How can a 15-year-old talk about absolute humility? But this 15-year-old this and these two 14-year-olds absolutely set the place on fire. Their sermons weren't perfect, y'all. There were some things that made you scratch your head. They made some mistakes. They did some things, you know. But they were willing to go for it. They didn't run from it. They ran right into it. And we have to be willing to let this next generation make the same mistakes we made, take the same chances and more than we took if we want them to go farther and do more. We have to give them room to fail and give them room to grow. And I can promise you this, that they will not grow without failing. It just won't happen. The third stone is global harvest. When we started this church 22 years ago, uh, one of the reasons that I felt called to come here was because of the emphasis on missions, on global missions. I actually, some of you heard me tell this story. I was, I'd come over here for, to see a friend, and I was on my way back uh, to Athens, and this friend had told me about uh, the rumblings that were going on here. They were going to start a church. There was a group uh, from a church that was going to leave that church and start a new church. And uh, because of their dissatisfaction over some of the denominational leanings of that particular church. And, and uh, I got in my car to go to drive back to Athens. 
And I started thinking about these people. I, I knew these people. They're going to start a church. And I just said, God, what do I do if they call me and ask me to help? I had no reason to think that they would, really. It just came to my mind as, as I drove. And I just said, Lord, what do I do? And, and the Lord spoke to me and he said, if they want to do this, this, and this, you say yes. And one of the thises was an emphasis on global missions. I pull in my driveway, I get out of my car, and I walk into the house, and the phone was ringing. We used to have these phones <laughs> that only rang in the house. I know. I don't know how we survived. But I walked in the house, the phone was ringing, I picked it up, and it was Charles Sineth, founding pastor of our church. And he said, Tom, we're going to start a church. And I said, I heard. And he said, I want to tell you about it. And I said, okay. And he said, we want to do this this and this, and we'd love for you to come and help us. And I went, oh no. <laughs> Global missions was one of the three things. I feel like we started strong with global missions, and, and it feels to me like we've lost some ground there. And some of it may have been COVID, but, but I think we had lost some ground before even COVID. And, and I want us to recapture that. Emphasis on missions. And, and there are a couple of reasons why I want us to do that. Number one is because we serve a global God. He's the God of the whole world. And we're a part of a global church. And I believe that we are uniquely positioned to have influence around the world. And I want us to take advantage of that. You know, there are people on this planet who have not heard. Not people who have not believed. People who haven't even heard the gospel preached. And we have to be intentional about reaching them. Another reason that I, I want us to, to regain that emphasis on missions is because I, I have seen very few things in my life that have the impact personally on the, the faith of an individual than going to another culture and, and participating in the spread of the gospel. Uh, through my years of youth ministry and college ministry, I, I did not see anything shape or change the trajectory of a person's life more than uh, mission trips. And so we, uh, we need to get that back. We need to uh, regain ground there. History is filled with stories of men and women who gave their lives for global harvest. George Whitfield prayed, Lord, give me souls or I will die. Give me souls or I will die. David Brainerd uh, is a lesser known. Some of you may have heard of him. I, I would encourage you to look him up. David Brainerd worked uh, extensively with Native Americans, and he, he wrote in his journal, consumed with passion, for the Native Americans, I cared not when or how I lived or what hardship I endured so that I could gain souls for Christ. While, I, while asleep, I dreamt of such things, and when awakened, the first thing I thought of was winning souls for Christ. We need a harvest passion, y'all. We need a harvest passion one that sees and thinks about the harvest continually. 
one that views and acts toward the harvest intentionally, one that loves the harvest deeply. The fourth stone for today is humility. The Bible is is clear about the difference in how God responds to humility and pride. He gives grace to the humble, and he resists the proud. We're not much afraid, really, of humility, but we are terrified of humiliation. But I want you to just think for a moment about the fact that God became a man. How humiliating. That God became a man, and and as a man, the creator of everything was despised and rejected by the creation and actually killed by what he created. Only those who risk humiliation will be able to move forward in the kingdom of God. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. It was never meant to be. There's a revival that is coming. I believe it. There's a revival that is coming, and it will be fueled by anonymous saints, men and women that you've never heard of. Great men and women whose names you don't know. And they will be great not because of what people think of them. They will be great because of what they think of God. I have learned one thing. Maybe above everything else except the importance of prayer. My number two lesson in 40 years of ministry is this. Fame is not your friend. Fame is not your friend. Obedience is your friend. Now, let's pray. Lord, we we need you. We can't do anything that you've set before us without a deep, intimate walk with you. We have to have that. And we can't make it happen. So we offer ourselves to you and we ask you, God, transform our hearts, shape us, form us, the way we think, the way we live, the way we choose, the way we love, everything about us. Everything about us needs to be saturated in you. So Holy Spirit, have your way in us and on us and through us until we are completely, absolutely, completely yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask our ministry teams to come and get into place. Uh, We want to have a time of ministry this morning. We'd love to pray for you. Um, Could be you're a teenager, you just got back from camp. Could be you're the parent of a teenager. 
who just got back from camp. We'd love to pray for you as you just ask God for the grace to keep going, to fan the flame of what God has done. And uh, we would love to pray for you. Uh, could be that, that you're one of those that just struggles with you know, the change from one generation to the next. I think we all do to some degree. We'd love to pray for you. Could be other things. Maybe, maybe you feel called today globally. Maybe you feel like God is calling you to be sent, to be trained and sent. We'd love to pray for you as well. So whatever it is that God is speaking to you, whatever it is that you need from him today, I encourage you to take advantage of these people who would love to pray for you. Uh, Won't you stand? I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll go into a time of ministry. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in this room and to do in this room what only you can do. We're not interested today in what man can do. We're not interested in what people can do. We're interested in what you can do. So come and have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.